Welcome back to the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we cover the topic of meningitis found under the neurology section at medbullets.com. Let's start off with the clinical snapshot. A 19-year-old man presents to the emergency department with a headache. His headache was initially mild, but then subsequently worsened over the course of two days. His headaches are associated with fevers, chills, photophobia, and neck stiffness. His temperature is 101 degrees Fahrenheit, blood pressure is 124 over 95, pulse is 118, and respirations are 22 per minute. Physical examination is notable for nuchal rigidity and petechial hemorrhages in the skin. An emergent lumbar puncture is performed and blood cultures are obtained. Immediately after, he is started on intravenous vancomycin and ceftriaxone. This is a case of meningococcal meningitis. Now for an introduction. Meningitis is defined as inflammation of the meninges that can be caused by infection, autoimmune disease, malignancy, and medications. Again, meningitis is defined as inflammation of the meninges that can be caused by infection, autoimmune disease, malignancy, and medications. Now let's look further into these etiologies. In terms of infection, know that it can be bacterial, viral, or fungal. Autoimmune diseases associated with meningitis include neurosarcoid and Bisset syndrome. In terms of malignancy, I want you to think of leptomeningeal carcinomatosis and hematologic malignancies associated with meningitis. Medications associated with drug-induced meningitis include trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, intravenous immunoglobulins, and infliximab. In terms of epidemiology, know that aseptic meningitis is more common than bacterial meningitis. Also, enteroviruses are the most common cause of viral meningitis. Bacterial meningitis is a medical emergency requiring prompt antibiotic treatment. Now let's discuss presentation. The classic symptoms of meningitis are headache, confusion, and photophobia. On physical exam, the patient may demonstrate nuchal rigidity. You can see this with a positive Koenig sign or a positive Brzezinski sign. When you're eliciting the positive Koenig sign, remember the patient is supine and knees are extended while hips are 90 degrees flexed, and pain or resistance are a positive sign. In a positive Brzezinski sign, the patient is supine again, and in this case, passive neck flexion leads to involuntary knee flexion. On physical exam, you may also see a petechial rash which may suggest Neisseria meningitidis infection. Now for some helpful diagnostic studies. A lumbar puncture helps give some clues as to what type of meningitis the patient has. LP studies must include opening pressure, cell count, protein, glucose, gram stain, and culture. You might also order some other tests depending on the clinical scenario such as acid fast bacillus or AFB stain in patients who are likely to have tuberculosis. In terms of serum studies, blood cultures are especially helpful in patients who urgently require antibiotics but are unable to get a lumbar puncture immediately. All right, so you got the tap and now you need to know about cerebral spinal fluid analysis. Like I just mentioned, the opening pressure, color, cell count, protein level, and CSF to serum glucose ratio all help us figure out if the meningitis is from a bacterial, viral, or a fungal slash TB etiology. 
In the case of normal CSF, the opening pressure will read equal to or less than 20 centimeters H2O. Color would be clear, cell count would be between 0 and 5, protein would be less than 45 milligrams per deciliter, and the CSF to serum glucose ratio would be greater than 0.6. In the case of bacterial meningitis, the opening pressure will be increased, the color will be cloudy, the cell count will be increased due to PMNs, protein will be increased, and the CSF to serum glucose ratio would be decreased. In a viral etiology, the opening pressure would be normal or slightly increased, the color would be clear, the cell count would be increased due to lymphocytes, protein would be slightly elevated, and the CSF to serum glucose ratio would be normal. Finally, we have the fungal slash tuberculosis category. In this case, the opening pressure is increased, you'll see a cloudy color, the cell count is increased, again due to lymphocytes, the protein would be increased, and the CSF to serum glucose ratio would be decreased. Now let's discuss the treatment of bacterial meningitis in terms of population affected, the causative organisms associated, and finally, the appropriate treatment for that population. In terms of infants less than a month old, Streptococcus agalactiae, group B streptococcus, Listeria monocytogenes, E. coli, and other gram-negative bacilli. Treatment for these organisms in this population include ampicillin and cefotaxime. Bacterial meningitis in 1 to 23 months of age is caused by Streptococcus pneumoniae, Neisseria meningitidis, S. agalactiae, Haemophilus influenza, and E. coli. Treatment includes vancomycin and ceftriaxone. In cases of streptococcal pneumonia, patients can benefit from dexamethasone. In the 2 to 50 years of age population, the causative organisms to know are Neisseria meningitidis and streptococcus pneumoniae. Treat these patients with, again, vancomycin and ceftriaxone. Finally, we have bacterial meningitis in those that are greater than 50 years of age or immunocompromised. Implicated causative organisms are Streptococcus pneumoniae, Neisseria meningitidis, Listeria monocytogenes, and aerobic gram-negative bacilli. Treatment includes vancomycin, ceftriaxone, and ampicillin. Management of viral meningitis includes supportive treatment. Meningococcal prophylaxis is indicated in the case of roommates or intimate contacts, also childcare workers, those that have direct exposure, such as with risk factors like kissing and endotracheal intubation, and sitting next to the affected person for eight or more hours. Prophylactic medications include rifampin, ceftriaxone, and ciprofloxacin. Know that rifampin interacts with oral contraceptives and other medications that use the cytochrome P450 system. In the case of cryptococcal meningitis, treatment includes amphotericin with flucytosine followed by fluconazole. Complications of meningitis include neurological sequelae like cognitive deficit, septic sinus thrombosis, and subdural effusion or empyema. Now that we've covered the high yield points of meningitis, let's try a practice question. A 22-year-old man presents to the emergency department with a fever and a headache. The patient states that his symptoms started yesterday and have gradually been worsening. The patient is generally healthy and is a soldier on leave from base. His temperature is 101 degrees Fahrenheit, blood pressure is 122 over 88, 
pulse is 107 per minute, and respirations are 14 per minute. Oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. Physical exam is notable for a positive jolt accentuation of headache. A lumbar puncture is performed, and CSF analysis demonstrates a lymphocyte predominance with an elevated protein and normal glucose without any red blood cells. Which of the following is the most appropriate management of this patient? Is it 1. Acyclovir, 2. CT head and neurosurgical drainage, 3. IVIG, 4. Supportive care only, or 5. Vancomycin, ceftriaxone, and dexamethasone? The correct answer is 4. Supportive care only. This patient is presenting with a fever, a headache, a positive jolt accentuation of headache, and a lumbar puncture demonstrating an increased cell count with a lymphocyte predominance, a normal glucose, and an elevated protein suggesting a diagnosis of a viral meningitis. Viral meningitis can be managed with supportive therapy alone. Meningitis presents with a fever, a headache, nausea and vomiting, neck stiffness, photophobia, and a positive Koenig and Brzezinski sign, as well as a positive jolt accentuation of headache. Any patient suspected of having meningitis should have a lumbar puncture performed along with CSF analysis. The CSF analysis in a viral meningitis will demonstrate an elevated cell count with a lymphocyte predominance, an elevated protein, and a normal glucose with a negative gram stain. Once a bacterial meningitis is ruled out, the patient only needs supportive therapy for a viral meningitis. All right, now let's discuss the incorrect answers. Answer one, acyclovir is the appropriate treatment of encephalitis, which presents in a patient with a history of HSV with a fever and confusion. PCR would reveal HSV as the causative organism and lumbar puncture would demonstrate increased red blood cells. Answer two, CT head and neurosurgical drainage is appropriate management of an intracranial abscess which would present with fever, headache, focal neurological deficits, and a history of immunosuppression or recurrent sinusitis. Answer 3. IVIG is appropriate management of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which would present with albuminocytologic dissociation on CSF analysis as well as a preceding diarrheal illness followed by ascending and flaccid paralysis and a reflexia. Answer 5. Vancomycin, ceftriaxone, and dexamethasone is appropriate management of bacterial meningitis, which could present similarly to viral meningitis, but would demonstrate a neutrophil predominance, a decreased glucose, an increased protein, and a positive gram stain. Now for a bullet summary. Supportive therapy is all that is needed for viral meningitis. With that summary, we conclude today's discussion of meningitis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing these topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or mobile app while reading through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets podcast thus far, We'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. 
Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.